The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On November 30th, 2021, a Michigan community was shaken to its core by a tragedy. Four young innocent lives, Madison Baldwin, Tate Meyer, Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling were taken at Oxford High School by a 15-year-old shooter. The suspect has since pleaded guilty to the charges from the shooting and has been sentenced to life without parole. But in an unprecedented turn, the shooter's parents have now both been charged, with each of them facing four counts of involuntary manslaughter and standing trial separately. On this week's Court TV podcast, you'll hear both sides opening statements in the trial of the shooter's mother, the first parent to stand trial for charges related to her child's shooting. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. I want to introduce you to Hannah St. Juliana, Madison Baldwin, Tate Muir, and Justin Schilling. They died on November the 30th of 2021. They weren't in a car crash. They weren't sick. They were murdered in an act of terror committed by Jennifer Crumbly's 15-year-old son. Jennifer Crumbly didn't pull the trigger that day, but she is responsible for those deaths. These kids were gunned down inside Oxford High School with this gun. It's a six-hour, nine-millimeter handgun purchased four days before the shooting by James Crumbly, Jennifer's husband and father of the school shooter. This was a purchase celebrated by Jennifer on Instagram. These are her words. This is her post. Mom and son day testing out his new Christmas present. My first time shooting a 9mm. I hit the bullseye. The evidence will prove that by the time this gun was bought, the school shooter was in a downward spiral that had begun months before. The evidence will also show you that Jennifer Crumbly was aware of that. Despite her knowledge of his deteriorating mental crisis, despite her knowledge of his growing social isolation, despite the fact that it is illegal for a 15-year-old to walk into a gun store and walk out with a handgun by himself, this gun was gifted. You will also learn that despite all of that background, this firearm was not secured in a way to prevent her son from gaining access to it. The evidence will also prove to you that even with all of that, on November the 30th, Jennifer Crumbly was still given the opportunity to prevent these murders from ever happening. Instead, she chose to do nothing. This drawing, this math worksheet, was sent to her November the 30th, 2021, at 9.30 in the morning. That's more than three hours before the first shot was fired. These writings, that drawing, created by her son. 
She was sent this by her son's school counselor when he requested an immediate meeting with her at the school that day. He requested that meeting because this drawing, those words, suggest both weapon and injury, even to someone with only limited knowledge of the shooter. Apparently, that raised an alarm with Jennifer Crumbly because she did go to the meeting with her husband, but before she did, she privately communicated her own concern with her husband. This will be admitted in evidence throughout the trial. This is a portion of a Facebook messenger thread from Jennifer to James Crumbly. Jennifer words in blue. Emergency. November 30th, 2021, 9.35 a.m. Then she sent the picture to James. His response, my God, WTF. And then he wrote back about the vet. He was at their barn worried about their horse. Jennifer's response, he said he was distraught about last night. And then, I'm very concerned, headed to his school. That's at 10, 12 a.m. Yet despite their private concern, the evidence presented in this trial will show to you that that meeting at the school was nothing like that school counselor or the dean of students who sat in that meeting had ever experienced before. Those two individuals, even with their limited knowledge of that drawing, had expected the defendant or her husband to take their son home and set an appointment with the mental health professional. But they didn't. You see, you'll learn that these kind of meetings, when they occur with parents, can last an hour or longer. This one was abruptly ended by Jennifer Crumbly after just over 11 minutes. And then she left. You see, this drawing alarmed everyone who saw it, including those who only knew the Crumblies in limited settings, or even to those who had never met their son before. The two people in the world, with all of the information, all of the background, to put this drawing into context were James and Jennifer Crumbly. And you will learn that in that meeting, they didn't share anything. They didn't say anything about the fact that that firearm was identical to the six-hour nine-millimeter. Identical. They didn't mention how that gun was stored. They didn't mention anything about his increased mental distress. You'll learn that after the meeting when they left, they didn't embrace him. You'll learn that their home is just down the road from the Oxford High School. They didn't stop by the house to look for the gun. You'll learn never once did they ask their son, where's the gun? They did nothing. They didn't do any number of tragically small and easy things that would have prevented all of this from happening. One thing will present itself during this trial is just how senseless November 30th was. And that's because of all of the easy, ordinary things for someone to do that nobody did. What I just outlined to you is a snapshot of the evidence that will be presented in this case. You will hear the facts and the evidence from the witnesses. You will hear from between 20 and 25 of those witnesses. You're going to see 
over 400 exhibits. You're going to hear from witnesses who were in law enforcement. You're going to hear from individuals who work for Oxford High School. You're going to hear from people who knew Jennifer Crumbly in social situations and those who work with Jennifer Crumbly. You're going to hear from victims in this case as well, those who were inside the school November the 30th. You're going to learn a little bit about the scope of the investigation. You'll learn that during this trial, the defendant's cell phone, her husband's cell phone, and their son's cell phone were seized. They were all forensically analyzed. Through all that data received, in addition to data obtained through cell phone towers, social media search warrants, uh, through information received through banking records, GPS pings from gun ranges, all this information we've presented to you, and you'll be able to obtain a digital footprint of the Crumbly family. And you'll get an idea, you'll get a view into the Crumbly life in the days, the weeks, the months preceding the shooting. You're also going to learn a little bit about the aftermath of the shooting. Specifically, you're going to see a pattern emerge in Jennifer Crumbly after the shooting on November 30th. That pattern will include and show you that she immediately began to downplay and downright lie about her level of knowledge of her son and that weapon and that drawing on November 30th. This pattern will continue up until the time that she and her husband are found hiding from the police in Detroit. This pattern will show you that her first instinct was to lie, her second was to run. Now, the evidence will show you that she didn't pull the trigger, but she's responsible. But there is no claim that she gifted that firearm to her son knowing he was going to commit the attack. There's no claim that she wanted him to commit the attack. So how can she be held responsible when her son pulled the trigger? And the answer is, she's not charged with murder. She's charged with involuntary manslaughter. You see, murder is it's an intentional killing. Involuntary manslaughter, by definition, is unintentional. It's rooted in negligence. You've heard Judge Matthews tell you that every crime is made up of called, something called elements. This is no exception. You're going to learn that involuntary manslaughter is committed when someone's acts or their failures to act or their failures to perform their legal duty were grossly negligent, and that gross negligence was a cause of death. A cause of death, not the cause of death. And that's very important. Because as you've heard, and you'll hear again and again in this trial, that in a case such as this, when somebody else was a cause of death, the person who was grossly negligent can and still will be held responsible. That is, if the person who pulled the trigger, if the shooter in this case, his act was reasonably foreseeable to the defendant. To the defendant, specific to her, not to everybody else in the world, not to a stranger, not to a teacher, but to his mother, one of the two people in the world who raised him, who lived with him for 15 years. One of the two people in the world who had all the information necessary to put that drawing into context. So what's gross negligence? You will learn that it is a willful disregard of danger. Gross negligence is when you could use ordinary care, just ordinary care, 
to avoid a known danger, and you don't, even though it is apparent that serious injury could occur. And that's what this case is about. It's about Jennifer Crumbly's willful disregard of the danger that she knew of. That's why we're here. We're not here to talk about good parenting or bad parenting. It's not illegal to be a bad parent. We're not here to put restrictions on gun owners. That's not our job. That's not your job. That's for lawmakers. We're not here to talk about who else might be culpable. Or who else you think shares some blame. You will learn about the meeting on November the 30th. You may not like the fact that neither the school counselor nor the dean of students searched school children's backpack. That's okay. That's okay. Because that does not mitigate Jennifer Crumley's culpability. You're going to learn a whole lot about James Crumley and her son. But James, he's not on trial today. He has another trial in front of another jury. Their son, his case is over. He's already been charged and convicted and sentenced for terrorism causing death and first-degree murder. Today is Jennifer's turn to stand trial. And you will evaluate the evidence as it pertains to her and her only. We're here because when Jennifer looked at this drawing, she didn't look at it the way a stranger would. When she looked at this drawing, she looked at it knowing the context and the origin. And when someone with that kind of information looks at this, the unimaginable becomes predictable. It becomes reasonably foreseeable. That's why, even though she didn't pull the trigger on November the 30th, she's responsible for those deaths. I ask that during this trial, you listen to the testimony, you review the evidence, and you follow the law. If you do that, you will undoubtedly reach a fair and just verdict. If you do that, you will find this defendant guilty. On my way to court today, I blasted Taylor Swift to warm up my voice and calm my nerves. And there was a line in one of her songs that summarized what this case is about. Band-aids don't stop bullet holes. And that's what this case is about. It's about the prosecution attempting to put a band-aid on problems that can't be fixed with a band-aid. The prosecution has charged Jennifer Crumley with involuntary manslaughter in an effort to make the community feel better, in an effort to make people feel like someone is being held responsible, in an effort to send a message to gun owners, and none of those problems will be solved by charging Jennifer Crumbly with involuntary manslaughter. It's the same effect as when your child comes to you with a boo-boo and you give them a Band-Aid that they put on that doesn't take away the pain and can't undo what's happened to them. And in this case, a Band-Aid will never bring back the lives that were lost by Hannah, Justin, Tate, and Madison Baldwin. 
And the evidence in this show, in this case, is, is absolutely horrific. Much of the evidence is going to make you sick and disgusted and scare you, traumatize you. And quite frankly, there's no reason the evidence needs to be shown. Mrs. Crumley, myself, everyone in this courtroom agrees that on November 30th, 2021, the worst possible thing happened when Ethan Crumbly used a gun and terrorized the Oxford High School. So as you are watching the evidence, I ask you to keep in mind that much of what the prosecution is going to show you is going to alarm you and disgust you and be horrifically sad and tragic. But that evidence is about Ethan, I'm sorry, excuse me, about the shooter. And in this case, we have agreed to call Jennifer Crumley's son the shooter because he is the shooter and he is the one, as you will see from the evidence, who was responsible for the tragedy that unfolded on November 30th of 2021. Prior to November 30th, Jennifer Crumbly was the mother to a 15-year-old son, and she did not have it on her radar in any way that there was any mental disturbance that her son would ever take a gun into a school, that her son would ever shoot people. The evidence at trial is going to show you that Jennifer Crumbly did the best she could as a mother to a child who grew up into a teenager and had no way to know what was going to happen. Jennifer Crumbly raised a son that she took to soccer practice, basketball, bowling, She's the kind of mother who, when a mole on his back changed color, a one-millimeter mole, she took him to urgent care. She's the kind of mother who's texting her husband, who is at home, working from home, where is Ethan, where is Ethan, where is Ethan, at 3.14 in the afternoon, getting texts back saying, Ethan gets home at 3.16, what's your problem? And she keeps texting, where is he, where is he? You will see that if anything, Jennifer Crumbly was a hypervigilant mother who cared more about her son than anything in the world. Jennifer Crumbly is not a perfect parent, and we don't claim that she is. But what the evidence is going to show in this case is that the prosecution has very selectively pulled out slivers of evidence from a forest of trees to try to convince you that there was something wrong with Ethan and Jennifer Crumbly, as his mom, should have known. And at the end of the day, these slivers of evidence that are going to be presented to you will have no context and no explanation 
And the defense will agree that on their face, it looks bad. But like any of you who look back at text messages sent a year ago, they may look bad without context and explanation. And so we would ask that you reserve any judgment on these slivers of evidence until the defense presents evidence itself, and we will be presenting evidence in this case, to show the context and what was truly happening on these days that the prosecution is going to try to make you believe something more was happening. By way of example, the prosecution has one day where they claim Ethan needed help, and Jennifer Crumbly was out with her horse. James Crumbly was with her at the barn. They had just gotten a new horse. Ethan is 15 years old at home, claiming there's a demon in the house, there's something going on, and the prosecution is going to try to use this one little point in time to convince you that Jennifer Crumbly was somehow neglecting her son. Much of the evidence in this trial is also going to center around James Crumbly, who is not on trial in this case. He has a separate trial, as Mr. Keese told you. You're going to hear evidence that James Crumbly and Ethan Crumbly liked guns. They had three guns. Two guns that were purchased earlier in 2021, and a gun that was purchased at a Black Friday sale the day after Thanksgiving in 2021. You are going to hear evidence that James and Ethan went to the shooting range often, that James was responsible for storing the guns, and to be quite frank, Jennifer Crumbly didn't know anything about guns. Jennifer Crumley, you will hear evidence, she went to the shooting range one time with James and the shooter, and she went a second time after the gun was bought. She was attempting to find a way to spend time with her son, who had just lost a dog, had just, his friend had moved away from him. She's trying to find a way to connect to him. But on that day, when Jennifer Crumbly went to the shooting range, you will hear evidence that she didn't even know where the gun was or how to put it in the car. She had her husband prepare the gun to take it to the range. He had hid the gun in the bedroom of their home. The gun had a cable lock, a trigger lock, in place. James Crumbly had the key to the trigger lock that kept the gun secure. James Crumbly used the trigger lock key, took the, the cable lock off, put the gun in the back of Miss Crumbly's car. Mrs. Crumbly simply drove to the gun range. You will see video of their experience at the gun range, and you will see that the shooter is the one showing Mrs. Crumbly how to use the gun at the range. And when they're done at the range, the gun was placed back in the back seat of the car, not back seat, but the back of an SUV. 
And Jennifer Crumbly drove home and not being responsible for storing the gun and not even knowing where the gun specifically was placed. Jennifer Crumbly left the gun locked in the trunk, the back part of her SUV. And James Crumbly was responsible for getting the gun out, putting the trigger lock back on, storing the gun, and Mrs. Crumbly had nothing to do with that part of what happened. Over the next couple of days, this is right after Thanksgiving, the family is picking out their Christmas tree, talking about Christmas presents. There was certainly some sadness in the shooter's life, but nothing that would have amounted to any reason to believe he's going to shoot people or commit a school shooting. You will hear testimony that on the day of the shooting, Jennifer Crumbly went to work. She is essentially the breadwinner at this time. Mr. Crumbly was in between jobs. He's about to get a job offer. Mrs. Crumbly is trying to keep the household finances up. She's at work and she finds out through an email and text message that her son has drawn this alarming drawing the prosecution put on the screen. Jennifer freaks out when she sees the drawing. You will see the text messages that show she's urgently texting her husband, emergency, call me now, and she races out of work and goes to the school. Upon arriving at the school, she meets with Sean Hopkins, the school counselor, she meets with Nick Ejak, the school principal, and she meets with James Crumbly and the shooter. And they are all in a room together where the shooter explains why he has put together this drawing and what the drawing means. The family and the school talk about how a counselor would be a good idea for Ethan, I'm sorry, the shooter to get into some kind of counseling. The meeting is not nearly as severe as Mrs. Crumbly was initially expecting. Trained professionals at the school who evaluate children represent that the shooter is of no risk to anyone and they allow him to stay in school. The testimony will show this is not a situation where Jennifer Crumbly refused to leave or refused to take her child from the school. She was provided the option of take him home or leave him here. The shooter struggled when they had online school during COVID. It caused him great anxiety to miss school and he wanted to stay that day. The school was fine with it. Mrs. Crumley did leave the school and left the shooter at the school, not knowing he was going to become a shooter within the next few hours. Jennifer Crumley, the evidence is going to show you, returns to work. And suddenly there is news that there's an open shooter at Oxford. 
Jennifer Crumbly, it's not even on her radar that her son would be the one with the gun doing anything. Her immediate concern is that her son may be hurt. As she is driving to the school as fast as she can, she has conversations with her husband and becomes aware that the gun at their house is missing. And in Jennifer Crumbly's mind, and you will hear evidence of this, she believes that perhaps her son has done something stupid, like taken the gun and shot it in the air or done something. She knows he's still alive and believes that it's going to be okay. Whatever's happened, they can cross that bridge. A little bit later, there's more conversations, and Mrs. Crumbly becomes concerned that the shooter is actually attempting suicide, and Jennifer Crumbly texts her son, Ethan, don't do it. It still has not crossed her mind that he would ever shoot another person. Ultimately, Jennifer and James Crumley are called to the substation where they learn that their son has become a school shooter and has shot people and that there are fatalities. Jennifer Crumbly will, will tell you she still could not believe that was true and went into a complete state of shock and despair and stress and not knowing what, realizing her life and everyone's life was going to change. And her initial comments are about how her son, how could her son have ruined so many lives that day? Jennifer Crumbly sees her son at the substation, and for the first time when he looks at her, his eyes looked black. And it was a son she did not recognize. Jennifer Crumbly and James Crumbly go back to their house where law enforcement execute a search warrant. Law enforcement takes their cell phones, um, which the Crumbly's handed over. The Crumbly's have to go and buy burner phones or track phones so they have something to use to be in touch. They begin to realize that there are death threats around their house. People are planning riots around their house, and they cannot be in their home. Jennifer Crumbly and James Crumbly drive to a hotel where they spend the night. They are trying to figure out what is happening? And all Jennifer can think about are the things she believes she can control, like keeping her job, keeping health insurance, figuring out money, figuring out lawyers, and trying to digest what has just absolutely tragically unfolded. In the days following the event, while the prosecution says the evidence will show Jennifer Crumbly is lying, Jennifer Crumbly is truthfully telling the world she had no idea and finding out that she is about to be charged 
in this band-aid effort by the prosecution with involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer and James Crumbly go to the bank. They're advised by friends and family, and you will hear testimony that their money could all be taken out of their accounts and they know they need money to be able to live and hire lawyers and figure out what to do. They withdraw all of the money from their bank account. The burner phones they're using, they can't get access to any of their accounts because of this two-part uh, authentication you now have to do. So they go to the Metro PCS store where they buy new telephones that they can actually use to access their social media, their accounts, their contacts, and they end up with multiple cell phones. After that, they work to find lawyers. They don't know what to do. They don't understand what they're being charged with. They're under the stress of knowing their son is going to, is gone, and, and life will never be the same undoubtedly. And on Friday, December 3rd, the Crumleys find out when a press conference is held that they are being charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. And at that point, they work they attempt to try to figure out what to do, where to stay, where to go, what to do. And they ultimately ask a friend if they can stay at his art studio until they know where to go and what to do. They make plans to turn themselves into the court on Saturday morning, because remember, this is late in the day Friday. Saturday morning at 8.30 when the court opens up and does weekend arraignments. And overnight, the prosecutor's office, the sheriff's department, the fugitive apprehension team, the U.S. Marshals have a statewide search claiming that James Crumbly and Jennifer Crumbly are on the lam. They are running. They are fleeing. They are trying to avoid charges. And it couldn't be any further from the truth. They are at their friend's art studio. They are waiting for instructions, and they are waiting to turn themselves in first thing Saturday morning when arraignments take place at the court. James and Jennifer Crumley are sleeping on a mattress in the middle of the night when police locate them. You will hear evidence. They're not really hiding. They're standing outside their car, their vehicle, smoking cigarettes. They're standing outside their car, um, talking on the telephone. They're communicating with various people they know. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that they're fleeing. You will see body camera footage where when police come into the art studio to find them dead asleep on this mattress, they are cooperative, they are taken into custody, and they are arrested. The prosecution has grossly misconstrued facts in this case, and I ask that you wait to make any judgment until all of the evidence has been presented and you have seen every detail of it, including Jennifer Crumley's testimony, and she is going to take the stand and tell you about her life with her son 
about the day he became the shooter and about the day he did something she could have never anticipated or fathomed or predicted. She will tell you that when she saw the materials in this case, she learned that her son had not been her son for months, that he had been manipulating her, that he had been hiding things from her, that he had been sending text messages, alarming text messages, to other people. You will hear that the school never advised Mrs. Crumbly of problematic issues that if she had heard about, she would have jumped right on top of it. Despite the fact the evidence will show that Mrs. Crumbly is on power schools, managing missing assignments by her son in his grades, the school never told her about times the shooter was trying to sleep in class, about a test he had failed, about the shooter being called to the office. She was never informed. You will hear testimony. She was never informed that the shooter wrote an autobiographical get-to-know-you poster where he says he feels terrible and his family's a mistake. The school never notified Mrs. Crumbly of this. You will hear testimony that the school never notified Mrs. Crumbly that the shooter was having a, quote, rough time when he spoke to the school counselor. You will hear testimony that the school never notified Ms. Crumbly that previous work found in the shooter's files showed that it leaned a little bit towards the violent side. You will hear testimony that the school never told Mrs. Crumbly about an index card the shooter wrote in class that had odd responses with a drawing of a loaded gun magazine and a person holding it out. You will hear that Mrs. Crumbly was never told much of the information the school had. And so when the prosecution is urging you not to assign fault to anyone else, at the end of the day, we ask that you pay attention to the evidence that Mrs. Crumbly knew. And quite frankly, when you evaluate that evidence and know what she knew and what she didn't know, and learn the context behind the slivers of evidence this prosecution's presenting, you will see that this was absolutely not foreseeable, this was absolutely not expected, and I am going to ask that you find Jennifer Crumbly not guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Thank you, There you have it. This trial is happening right now, and you can see it all unfold on Court TV. There's a link in the show notes to our continuing coverage of this unprecedented case. And you can see me every night at 8 p.m. Eastern on my show, Closing Arguments with Vinnie Politan, where we track the latest true crime stories. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. 
Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.